Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 222, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 1. Last time, we covered the 12 most important battles in pre-Soviet history. Today, we begin a new four-part series on one of the most tragic stories in Russian history, the Siege of Leningrad. One of the reasons I want to do this is what's going on in Ukraine right now. And there's a number of sieges going on and people are suffering. And this four-part series will show you the kind of suffering that people went through in Leningrad and are now going through in Ukraine. The Siege of Leningrad is a historical event, a tragedy that has been pushed aside by many. It was an atrocity committed by the Nazis that rivals any other that they perpetrated during World War II. The suffering, mainly by women and children, is something that should never be forgotten. I hope, in this series, to commemorate the sacrifices made by over 750,000 souls who lost their lives during the 900 days beginning in 1941 and ending in 1944. My main sources for this episode includes the classic work, The 900 Days, The Siege of Leningrad by Harrison E. Salisbury, and the remarkable book, and one I highly recommend, Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, 1941-1944 by Anna Reed. To put the carnage that we're going to cover in this series, let's put the Siege of Leningrad into perspective. Anna Reed puts it this way. Quote, with the fall of communism 20 years ago, it regained its old name. But for the older inhabitants, it is still Leningrad. Not so much for Lenin as in honor of the approximately three quarters of a million civilians who starved to death during the almost 900 days, from September 1941 to January 1944, during which the city was besieged by Nazi Germany. Other modern sieges, those of Madrid and Sarajevo, lasted longer, but none killed even a tenth as many people. Around 35 times died in Leningrad than in London's Blitz, four times more than in the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima put together. To understand how hard what was about to happen to the people of Leningrad is that anyone over the age of 30 at that time, would have already lived through three wars, World War I, the Russian Civil War, and the Winter War with Finland. They also would have endured two famines, one during the Civil War and the other during the collectivization period of 1932 to 33. To top it off, they lived through two Stalin-led terrors, which took countless lives, with many being sent to the gulags. Before the siege, there was about 3 million people living in Leningrad. This was reduced by about 500,000 after the invasion began due to excavation, uh, evacuations excuse me, and those who either volunteered or were drafted into the army. This leaves about 2.5 million inhabitants. Around one-fifth or 500,000 were children. An untold number were also elderly which means that the most of the people left in the city were the most vulnerable, a recipe for disaster. The Siege of Leningrad is one of the least written about tragedies of World War II for a number of reasons. The first being the battles of Stalingrad and Moscow bore the main attention from military historians. The main reason, though, was the Soviet authorities' fault. 
While the siege was going on, censorship by the government was in full display. They did not want the Russian people to know what was going on. Stalin allowed the press to admit that there were some hardships and there was a shortage of food, but nothing like the true conditions facing the people. It was only after the war, at the Nuremberg War Crime Trials, that the Soviets told the world of the famine that they claim, with an absurd amount of precision, was that 632,253 people died during the almost three-year siege. The aftermath of the siege was controlled by Stalin's henchmen. Some of the men who rallied the people during the period were executed. The official reason given was that they were embezzling money from the local government. In reality, they were being punished for having too good of a profile among the people, threatening Stalin's precious ego. Post-Soviet collapse, a large amount of evidence showing the horrors of those nearly 900 days of what was now been thought of as a genocide have been revealed. As Anna Reid writes, quote, Through gaps, though gaps remain, some material is still classified. Some was destroyed during the post-war purges. The new material leaves Brezhnev's mawkish fairy tale in tatters. Yes, Leningraders displayed extraordinary endurance, selflessness, and courage. But they also stole, murdered, abandoned relatives, and resorted to eating human meat, as all societies do when the food runs out. Yes, the regime successfully defended the city, devising ingenious food supplements and establishing supply and evacuation routes across Lake Lagoda. But it also delayed bungled, squandered its soldiers' lives by sending them into battle untrained and unarmed, fed its own senior apparatchiks while all around starved, and made thousands of pointless executions and arrests. The tale I will present to you over the coming episodes will hopefully let you feel the hopelessness, the courageousness, the bewilderment of the people of Leningrad. Many made the ultimate sacrifice, and some did some truly evil things. All in all, it was a time when every human trait came out in the people. Returning to Anna Reid, quote, It is, like all stories of humanity in the extremes, to remind ourselves what it is to be human, of the depths and heights of human behavior. The prelude to the Siege of Leningrad began on Sunday, June 22, 1941, with the invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany, known as Operation Barbarossa. Adolf Hitler, in his book Mein Kampf, had claimed that Germany's destiny was in the East. His ideas were to capture as much land as possible for Hitler's version of Lebensraum, or living space for the Germanic peoples. Nazi policy was to kill deport, or enslave the majority of Russian and other Slavic populations. They would then be replaced by Germans, whom he believed was a superior race to the Slavs. The propaganda against the so-called quote-unquote Jewish Bolsheviks had been going on for years before the invasion. Nazi Wehrmacht troops were told that they should target Jewish Bolshevik subhumans, the Mongol hordes, the Asiatic flood, and the Red Beast. Within the first six months of Operation Barbarossa, over half a million people had been murdered, not including troops. This was more than had been killed in the numerous battles on the Eastern Front. 
During the spring of 1941, the Germans had swept through Yugoslavia, Greece, Crete, and Rommel was threatening the Suez Canal. With most of Europe under the Nazis' control, everyone wondered who was next. The general thought was that England would be the next domino, but there were those who felt that the Soviet Union would be the target. Moscow had denied this as Stalin had made this public policy. Whether Stalin believed that the Germans would attack or not is unclear. He had to think that it was inevitable, but when it happened, he was dumbfounded and refused to publicly acknowledge it at first. Stalin believed that it wouldn't be until 1942 that the Germans would decide to attack, giving him and his country plenty of time to prepare itself. What is pretty incredible in hindsight is that the Soviet Union was supplying the Germans with grain, petroleum, rubber, and copper up until the night before the invasion. Stalin thought that appeasement would buy him another year of peace. The same mistakes that cost so many lives in the Winter War were duplicated in the early days of the invasion. So sure, that no invasion was imminent, and Stalin's man in charge of Leningrad, Andrei Zhdanov, left Moscow for a six-week vacation in Sochi. Despite repeated warnings from the Soviet ambassador in Berlin, British intelligence, and the three deserters from the German army, telling them that at 4 a.m. on July 22nd, that the Nazis planned to attack, no one believed any of them. The first public announcement of the invasion was not done by Stalin, but by Vyacheslav Molotov. He said, quote, Men and women, citizens of the Soviet Union, at four o'clock this morning, without declaration of war, and without any claims being made on the Soviet Union, German troops attacked our country. This attack has been made despite the existence of a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Germany, a pact the terms of which were scrupulously observed by the Soviet Union. Our cause is good. Our enemy will be smashed. Victory will be ours. People began to panic in Leningrad. They began to withdraw as much cash as they could from the banks until they were bled dry. The citizens in the city began to buy anything and everything they could find on the store shelves. Many had a foreboding feeling that things were, not, were going to get rough in the coming year. They had no inkling how horrible it would become. The Nazis believed that they would have an easy go at it. It watched an amusement by how poorly the Soviet Red Army performed in the Winter War against Finland. Finland, a country of 3.7 million, put up a tremendous fight against the USSR with their 200 million citizens. Over 120,000 Red Army troops were killed in this war. Hitler saw this, knowing that Stalin had purged a large number of the officer corps. Three of the five marshals of the Soviet Union, 60 out of 67 corps commanders, 136 out of 169 divisional commanders, and 15 out of 25 admirals were arrested. A total of 40,000 officers were, re were detained and 15,000 executed. When the first news of the bombings of Kiev, Minsk, Vilnius, and Sevastopol reached General Zhukov, he phoned Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, who said nothing. 
Zhukov remembers telling his boss, quote, Did you understand what I said, Comrade Stalin? He repeated the news, and finally, Stalin agreed that war had indeed broken out. A question that historians have repeatedly asked about the invasion of Soviet Union is, why did Hitler do it? Hadn't he realized that the all-powerful French army led by Napoleon failed in its attempt to successfully invade? Go back even further. The brilliant military mind of Charles XII of Sweden failed as well. Hitler was, as most of you realize, not only a megalomaniac, he was delusional. His generals knew it, but they were too scared to oppose him. Hitler not only wanted to invade and take over the land of Russia for his people, he also wanted to wipe out all Slavs. Those he would not kill would become slaves. Hitler wanted to destroy their cities, looting anything valuable from them. Anna Reid brings up an interesting set of questions in her book. Quote, what was the sense in occupying a country so as to destroy it? Where was the money for the new roads and cities to come from? The millions of willing settlers, the troops to hold half a continent, and permanent slavery. The logistics alone would tell any sane person that Hitler's dream was never going to turn into reality. One of Hitler's generals who planned the invasion beginning in 1940, General Franz Halder, had severe doubts about the whole affair. He writes in his diary on January 28, 1941, quote, Barbarossa, purpose unclear. We don't hit the British that way. Risk in the West must not be underestimated. It's possible that Italy collapses following the loss of her colonies and we get a southern front in Spain, Italy, and Greece. If we're then tied up in Russia, a bad situation will be made worse. He was right on almost all counts. Even Hermann Goering was concerned that they wouldn't have sufficient supplies to successfully carry out the mission. Hitler and some of his generals believed that the men would be able to live off the land. The original date for the invasion was May 15, 1941. It would have made the attack much easier in the long run, as it would have given more time to advance for the advance to occur before winter set in. The delay was caused by Italy's calls for help in Greece and Libya. It also caused the initial two-pronged attack to become a three-pronged attack. This would turn out to be a fatal mistake. The plan was that it would only take three months for the Wehrmacht to achieve total victory. That would take them into August, leaving a lot of leeway in case it took more time. By beginning in late June, three months out would land them in late September, where the chances of winter or bad weather arriving were very likely, meaning there was no leeway at all. And this is exactly what happened. But... As many have heard, Hitler believed that the Soviet Union was weak, and most people hated Stalin and the Bolsheviks. Hitler was reported to have said, quote, Smash in the door, and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down. One of Hitler's field marshals, Paul Ludwig Ewald von Kleist, after the war commented, quote, 
Two high hopes were built on the belief that Stalin would be overthrown by his own people if he suffered political defeats. The belief was fostered by Fuhrer's own political advisors, and we, as soldiers, didn't know enough about the political side to dispute it. Hitler failed to understand the people of the Soviet Union. He was under the gross misconception that communism was so bad and Stalin's henchmen were so hated that the people would not volunteer to help with the war effort. To the contrary, in Leningrad alone, over 100,000 men and women volunteered in the first 24 hours of the war. Zhidanov made it back to Leningrad on June 26th, and he, along with the chairman of the city Soviet, Pyotr Popkov, and commander of the Leningrad garrison, Lieutenant General Popov, began putting into place plans that were being drawn up in Moscow. In their paranoia, they began to arrest anyone who they deemed to be collaborators and potential spies. This meant that their first target would be ethnic Germans and Finns. In the summer of 1941, 23,000 Germans and Finns were deported, with an additional 35,000 being sent off in a March, in March of 1942. Anyone who talked of defeat risked their lives. By the early part of July, executions of people, quote-unquote, spreading defeatist rumors, began. As Reed puts it, quote, Hundreds of ordinary people were arrested for complaining about their working hours, predicting a bad harvest, or passing news of the bombing of Kiev and Smolensk. On June 27th, an order was issued that all able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 50, along with all women, except those who had small children, between the ages of 16 and 45, were to report for civil defense work. Anti-tank ditches, building air raid shelters, camouflaging buildings, being trained in firefighting, bomb disposal, and first aid were among the jobs handed out. As I mentioned earlier, people were in a buying frenzy, looking for any supplies that they could get their hands on. Some had more foresight than others. That would mean the difference between life and death for many. As Dmitry Likhachev would recount after the war in his book, Reflections on a Russian Soul, a memoir, quote, In winter, lying in bed, I thought of one thing until my head hurt. There, on the shelves in the shops, there had been canned fish. Why hadn't I bought it? Why had I bought only 11 jars of cod liver oil and not gone to the chemist's a fifth time? to get another three. Why hadn't I bought a few vitamin C and glucose tablets? These whys were terribly tormenting. I thought of every uneaten bowl of soup, every crust of bread thrown away, every potato peeling, with as much remorse and despair as if I had been the murderer of my own children. But all the same, we did much as we could, and believed the reassuring announcements on the radio. 
It wasn't until July 3rd that Stalin would speak to the people of the Soviet Union. It was, by all accounts, a rah-rah speech, beseeching the people not to allow anything to fall into the hands of the enemies. He also called for roads to be made impassable, blow up all bridges, forests to be burned, and telephone wires to be cut. Stalin made it sound like the end of the war, with a resounding Soviet victory, was just around the corner. It would last almost four more years. Here's the reality of the first 11 days of Operation Barbarossa. On the German side and their ally side, we have 4 million troops, 3,350 tanks, 7,000 artillery guns, 2,000 aircraft, and something a lot of people don't, don't know and don't realize about the war, 600,000 horses. Everybody thinks that the Germans were totally mechanized, but actually weren't. They did rely very heavily on horses. Now, the differences in troop numbers was the largest gap between the Red Army and the Wehrmacht, and this was especially true in the north. Army Group North was led by Field Marshal Wilhelm Richard von Lieb. He and two of the commanders under him, General Ernst Busch and General George von Klucher, had just come from France where they overwhelmed their army and the Maginot Line. This leadership was key to their advance and route of the Soviet troops on their way to Leningrad. The Red Army had no one of any accomplishment leading after Stalin's purges. The Soviets had built up their army in numbers, but they were woefully under-equipped. They had amassed a force of 5.7 million men. Now, this would increase greatly in the coming years, but it would be inadequate to stop the early advance of the Nazi war machine. In the first day of fighting, 1,200 Soviet fighter planes had been destroyed, giving the Germans air superiority, something they would enjoy for the next year. The chaos on the front for the Soviet troops was cataclysmic. Those troops who didn't retreat in time were killed or captured by the Germans and their allies. Most of the Soviet troops who were captured died, and those that made it back after the war were not given a hero's welcome. Most would be either executed or sent to the gulags as punishment. And this is something that I'm going to cover in the fourth part of the series. What happened to the troops who were in uh, German hands, about 1.2 million, who were repatriated back to the Soviet Union? It was a tragedy. And before we end this episode, I'd like to share these sad facts about the effect the coming four years of war would have on the Soviet Union and their people. Operation Barbarossa was the largest military operation in history. More men, tanks, guns, and aircraft were deployed than in any other offensive. The invasion opened up the Eastern Front, the war's largest theater, which saw clashes of unprecedented violence and destruction for four years and killed 26 million Soviet people, including about 8.6 million Red Army soldiers. More died fighting on the Eastern Front than in all other fighting across the globe during World War II. Damage to both the economy and landscape was enormous, as approximately 1,710 Soviet towns and 70,000 villages were razed. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
Join me next time as we follow the Nazis' march toward Leningrad, where they will arrive in August 1941. So, until next time, das Vidanya ist passiva Bolshoya.